Please join me in John chapter 21. And if you're new to the Bible and you don't know where that is, we are glad that you're here. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to come here. We have a Bible for you right there in front of you in the rack in the seat right in front of you. And there's a Bible there. And on page 856, or 853 rather, 853 is John chapter 21. And you can follow along the riches of God's word with us. And as you're finding your place there, here are a couple of questions for us. First question, is there any hope for a Christian who has failed miserably? Here's a question. Can a Christian be useful again after falling into disappointing sin? You and I know that the gospel is good news for the unbeliever. That's why we go to places like Alaska. That's why we go to places like India to take the gospel to those who've never heard that they can hear about a savior who died for them, was raised from the dead to offer them forgiveness of all of their sins. But we might wonder, now, wait a minute. If I am a Christian and I knew better and I fell into sin, is there any hope for me? And we're gonna see through the life of Peter here in John 21, the answer to that is a resounding yes. You can be forgiven, you can be restored, you can be useful again to the Lord. Now, last time we were together, we were celebrating the resurrection. This chip reminds us every Sunday we're celebrating the death and resurrection of Jesus. But last week we were there together, thinking together about how Jesus died for our sins. He was indeed raised. He came out of his grave. He laid those grave cloths off to the side, folded neatly, and he goes about. And remember, he appeared to Mary Magdalene outside of the tomb. We know that first Easter night, Jesus appeared to his disciples there as they were gathered in a room, but Thomas wasn't there. And last time we saw when Jesus came back a week later to these disciples with Thomas present, and Thomas made that most beautiful, perfect profession of faith. He said to the risen Savior, my Lord and my God. And we said last time that was not him using God's name in vain. It wouldn't enter his mind to do that. He would never sin like that. He was making a profound, theologically true statement of worship. Jesus, I know you. I saw your ministry, the great things you did. I saw you brutally crucified. I now see you alive. And so this is who you are to me. You're my Lord and you are my God. By the way, that knowledge of the crucified risen Savior requires the same response from you. If you wish to be saved, if you wish to be forgiven, if you wish to have eternal life, you need to have that same heart toward Jesus. Oh, you are my savior. You're my Lord. You're my God. Well, what happened next? That's where John leaves us at the end of chapter 20. What happens next? Well, we're told that Jesus in Acts chapter one, verse three, he stayed on the earth before he ascended back to heaven for 40 days. So think about that. Over, over five weeks, he's on the earth appearing to people at various times. We're told in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 6 that he had other post-resurrection appearances to people. In fact, on one occasion, we're told there were 500 people gathered at once and saw the risen Christ. But John takes us now in chapter 21 to an occasion where Jesus once again appears to his disciples. And this is going to be most significant for Peter and it's going to be good news for us. Jesus is going to interact with Simon Peter, this one who failed so miserably after the arrest of Jesus. Do you remember? Peter denied Jesus three times in the courtyard of the high priest after Jesus had been arrested. Remember, people came up to him around a fire and they said, hey, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? 
You're from Galilee. I, you're one of his followers. And three times, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know who you're talking about. I don't, I don't know him. And scripture says he even swore during all that. And then as Jesus had predicted, then the rooster crowed. Luke tells us that Jesus and Peter met eyes there at that moment. It was a terrible failure in the life of Peter. And here we're going to find when he specifically and tenderly restored to Jesus. Now, John here sets the scene of when this is going to happen and where in John 21. Let's pick up in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of the disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said, we'll go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So the disciples... They go fishing. They've left Jerusalem where they had these post-resurrection encounters with the risen Lord. Now they're in Galilee where they were told they were going to see the Lord again. And they go fishing. Now that seems a bit strange maybe to some. Like why would they go fishing? They've, they've seen the risen Savior. Shouldn't they be about some more important things than that? And some scholars and some preachers through the years have tried to really get into the mind of Peter. Hey, what's this about? And many have concluded that Peter is now displaying another moment of weakness, that he's disillusioned, that he's going back to his previous career as a fisherman, and this is a, another kind of betrayal. That's interesting. It may be true. Some great preachers have preached that, but I don't see anything from the text that tells us that's what's happening here. You have to read some things in here. Again, it might be possible, but we know this. In Matthew's gospel, three times they're told specifically, you're going you're gonna to see him in Galilee. So they're up in Galilee, and the question is, what should they be doing while they're waiting on seeing the risen Christ again? So we can imagine, are, are they supposed to sit in a room and just wait for that? Or maybe they can go fishing. One scholar simply said this, well, they had to eat. And so it's possible that there's nothing bad here going on. It's just that we're here. This is what we know how to do. We need to feed ourselves rather than presume others are going to feed us. Let's go fishing. Let's get some food. So kind of trying to defend Peter a little bit here, maybe. But now we're told where they went fishing, they're on the Sea of Tiberias, more famously known as the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee, by the way, is still there in Israel. It's a very, very large lake. I researched it this week. It has a surface area of 64 square miles. The Sea of Galilee is 13 miles north to south and 7 miles east to west. And there they go fishing, a familiar place for them. But that night, they caught nothing. So now let's see what happens when Jesus shows up. Verse 3 again, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. So the fishing's interesting. We'll talk more about that, but that's not really the main point. The main point is here's Jesus alive from the dead, appearing to them again. Again, verse 1, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. So this fishing encounter, this great catch of fish is the occasion 
where Jesus once again wants his disciples to see him alive from the dead. Now, if this miraculous catch of fish sounds familiar, it's because Jesus had done a very similar miracle way back in Luke chapter 5. The occasion of that miraculous catch was at, when, at the occasion when Jesus was calling Peter, James, and John to follow him initially. They were fishermen. And there's an occasion where Jesus had taught. Then Jesus tells Peter, drop your nets in there. He said, we hadn't caught anything all night. Jesus says, just drop it in there. They said, okay, because of what you said, we'll do it. And they caught quite a catch of fish. In Luke 5, we're told on that occasion, early in the ministry of Jesus, the nets were breaking. When they got the fish into the two boats, the boats were sinking. It was an amazing catch. And it humbled Peter right at the beginning. In fact, we're told there that they left their fishing business at its prime with all those fish. And they left their nets and they went and followed Jesus. So here we have Jesus now, after the resurrection, doing a similar miracle. So think about this. At the first calling of Peter, James, and John, this miracle. When he first commissions them to come and follow me. And now here before Jesus ascends to heaven, he gives them a very similar miracle as he recommissions Peter, James, and John. But first notice here their recognition of Jesus. Verse 7, that disciple whom Jesus loved, by the way, that's John. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. Let's take a moment here and let's look at Peter's joy. Don't you love Peter? How he throws his robe on and throws himself into the water. Certainly, he didn't have a plan to do that. They knew they would be seeing Jesus again in Galilee. They'd been told that, but that had been a night of fishing and the fishing hadn't gone really well. So he's probably just focused on the task. But when John says, it's Jesus, he doesn't think, is it, there's Jesus throwing on the outer garment. I'm going to him. I got to get to him fast. And we're told he swam and waited the, the hundred yards to get to the shore to Jesus. So this is Something we consistently see in the personality of Peter as we read these four Gospels. John would be quicker to perceive things and Peter would be quicker to react. He's got such enthusiasm here and it's very much right. John simply says, it's the Lord. Peter jumps, throws on the rope, jumps in. I got to get to him as fast as possible. Here's a question. Is Peter's response ridiculous or right? Is Peter's response ridiculous or right? You know, it's possible you and I can get so familiar with Jesus and these things about Jesus. He died. He was raised. We can not engage our minds and we can lose our sense of wonder at Jesus. We can lose our sense of awe. We can lose any sense of adoration. We can lose any sense of passion for Jesus. We need to be more like Peter here. In fact, earlier in the Gospels, before the cross, you remember there's an occasion where Jesus comes walking by on the water, and Peter rightly says, Jesus, you could command me to come out to you on the water. And Jesus, come on. And he walks with Jesus on the water. Don't, don't you want to be more like that? Or how, here on this occasion, after the resurrection, John says, it's the Lord. And here's Peter. He's also now jumping out of the boat. I just want to be with Jesus. So the question is, do you have passion for Jesus like that. And if not, would you take this opportunity to ask the Lord to rekindle 
a fire for him in your life. I'm aware that probably some around the room right now are thinking, you know, I used to love Jesus like that. I used to be crazy in love for Jesus. I used to have fire for him. I used to be passionate about Jesus, but now life's gotten pretty ordinary and Jesus is among a number of things that I find okay, but I'm not, I'm not excited. Listen, ask him, Lord, would you, would you rekindle my love for you to where it ought to be, to where I have a love like this, where I'd be jumping out of boats <laughs> to get to you? This type of passion for Jesus, we need to have it. And it's very attractive. It's, it's very evangelistic. I know this because I saw this in my brother. And many of you know my story of how I came to faith. But it started with my brother coming into our family of cultural Christians and showed us what it looked like to love and trust Jesus. So I grew up going to church reluctantly. There was never a Sunday I went because I wanted to growing up. Now, that's to the credit of my parents. They did the right thing to expose me to the truth, even though I wasn't having any of it. But my brother shocked us all by not just being a churchgoer like all of us were. We thought about Jesus like once a week, unless we had a problem. But here's my brother coming in on Tuesdays and Thursdays every day. He's excited about Jesus. I remember telling my big brother, George, we're all Christians here. You don't have to talk about it so much. That's, that's where my spiritual life was. But thankfully, nothing dampened his joy in Jesus. He just kept talking about Jesus. And so over time, I began to wonder, maybe he's right and maybe I'm wrong. And so, as you've heard my story, many of you, the first thing I did was he, he was listening to Christian rock music and he had these albums. It's back in the day we actually had albums. And uh, I didn't want him to know, but I, I, when he left, I put the album on the turntable and I'm listening to this Christian rock music. And then I didn't know it was wrong to do in the time, but I made my bootleg copies. And back in the days we had cassettes. This is how old I am. Uh, so I made these cassettes and I'm driving around my little Volkswagen Beetle listening to Christian rock music. I'm still not a Christian yet. I don't realize I'm lost, but I'm thinking, this is good. This is a style of music I like, but they're singing about God. And so then, it, then God used that to also have me consider, well, what else is my brother doing? Well, he's reading his Bible. He talks about reading the Bible. Let me try this. And so in my bedroom at night, I took a Bible that was in my room and I began to read it. And God, of course, was all in this from start to finish, but helped me through reading the Bible over a period of months to start realizing I see the connection now. I've heard about Jesus dying on a cross. I've heard about him being raised from the dead. I've always believed that, but now I get why I need that. I'm not one of those people who's been walking with God. I've been away from God. I've been sinning and he can forgive me. And that joy my brother had, that now was in me. And here I am all these years later, still talking about Jesus, still in love with Jesus, still passionate for Jesus. Just making the point, Peter's response to Jesus being there, leaping toward him, not ridiculous. In fact, it would be ridiculous not to act that way. You know, to, to say that you know Jesus, think about it, this morning. If you say, I, I believe in Jesus, I believe he died for my sins, I believe he was raised from the dead, and have no affection for him, that would be ridiculous. That's actually alarming. So let's play with that a second. If you look at your heart and you go, I don't, I don't have any fire. I don't have any passion for Jesus. What could be the cause of that? And there are several possibilities. First of all, it could be that you don't know him. You're, you're like my family was, just cultural Christians. We go to church because we'd feel bad if we didn't. It's what you're supposed to do. But we didn't know him personally. We're just checking the boxes. And maybe, maybe that's you. Or maybe you do know him, but you've allowed yourself to get so distracted with so many lesser things that you have forgotten how awesome he is. Maybe you're neglecting him. You got this great treasure of the Bible, this great treasure of prayer. You can spend time with him to stay reminded every day how awesome he is. And you've not been doing that. And so you're just bored because you're not aware. You've forgotten who he is. Or maybe you need to see a doctor. If you look at your life, you're like, I'm not excited about anything. Ice cream doesn't excite me. 
sports doesn't excite me. Jesus doesn't excite me. Maybe talk to somebody. There might be something out there that, that nothing's registering. But if you look at your life and, no, I love ice cream and I'm excited about sports. It's just Jesus that doesn't do anything for me. Well, that's a spiritual problem. And you can have a relationship with Jesus. And we'd love to help you with that. We're just making the point. It's not ridiculous to have passion for Jesus. Something's up if you don't. Well, we re-enter the story here. We have Jesus here. Gives us this miraculous catch of fish. And now Jesus is providing breakfast for them on the beach. Verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So many things wonderful in this passage. First of all, isn't it wonderful? Jesus is alive. Back to that being the point. Verse 14 again. This now was the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. We can never get past it. This is huge. He was literally crucified died and he's bodily erased and he's there interacting with the disciples. We're told here this is the third time he met with his disciples. He's had more resurrection appearances of that. Remember, in, in addition to these times with the groups of disciples, he's appeared to Mary Magdalene, the two on the road to Emmaus. But, but John says this is the third time he met with us as a group. I also love this because here we find Jesus providing for them. He tells them where they can find fish. This is net fishing. That's still how they often fish there in the Sea of Galilee. They're throwing nets in the water and then with weights on the end and they're gathering up the fish. And Jesus tells them where to find fish after a night of fruitless fishing. They listen to him. They cast the nets on the right side. And we're told that they catch 153 fish. That number 153. Is there any theological significance to that number 153. Answer, no. There's no theological significance, but people through the centuries have tried to find some. So you'll read some old commentaries and they'll, they'll try to find some. It's in the Bible. It must have some kind of meaning to it. And one effort was to try to come up with some Hebrew words and you do the numerical value of the Hebrew letters and you put them all together and you get 153, but you don't see any of that in the text. And wouldn't that be hard to figure out which Hebrew words we're supposed to be thinking about? to come up with a total. So really the reason why the number 153 is here is because that's how many fish they caught. I don't know a lot about fishing. I don't fish much very often. I think it's been decades since I last threw a line in the water and I've never net fished like this. But I know this about fishermen. They like to tell you about what they caught and they normally tell the truth, I'm told, right? They, they tell you things. <laughs> But they'll tell you how big the fish was, how large the fish was. And if they catch a lot of fish, doesn't it sound like a bunch of guys have been fishing? How many were there? That's amazing. This is a miracle. Of course, they're going to count on this 153 fish. It's just an amazing catch that's recorded here. It's just historical, accurate information. I, th I love that detail here. And then Jesus has food ready for them. Bring some of the fish you just caught. But he's already got a fire going on the beach. He's already grilling some fish for them and giving them bread. They're having breakfast. I just love seeing his providing even this need. But the big thing here is their faith is being strengthened. I love verse 12. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. You can tell here their minds are still reeling. This, this is still mind-blowing. 
Like, we've already met with you a couple of times. We've already had these post-resurrection experiences, but is this, is this really happening? You, in their minds, they're probably wanting to say, is this really you? But, but they already know it is. They don't dare say it because they're having this wonderful time in his presence. But now we have this occasion now of Peter's restoration. And Peter needed to be restored to the Lord. Isn't it interesting, and we talked about this before, that Peter has so many of his failing moments recorded in Scripture. And aren't you glad your failing moments are not recorded in scriptures? I'm glad that wasn't the plan of God. I'm going to put, Jim, I'm going to put all your failures in here for people to learn from you and your failures. Well, that was Peter. We got a lot of highlights for Peter, but we've got moments, some of his failures. So we talked about it a moment ago where Peter walked on water. That's a moment of success. I mean, all the other disciples didn't even think about it. So that's a great guy. I want to walk with you on the water. But then he took his eyes off Jesus and sank. And that moment of failure is recorded in the scripture. Another moment was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus reveals his glory to his disciples, Peter, James, and John. And Moses and Elijah, we're told, are there. They appear for a moment. And Peter blurts out, hey, I could build three tabernacles for each one of you. And God speaks from heaven, no, this is my son. There's a moment of failure for Peter there. How about this one? This might be among, this would, this would rival the denial of Christ. When, when Jesus was telling his disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and suffer there, Peter didn't like it. Peter, listen, Peter rebuked Jesus, and you don't do that. And then Jesus rebuked Peter, the worst rebuke recorded anywhere in the Scripture, where he says to him, get behind me, Satan. That's quite a rebuke. That's a moment of failure here recorded. But the worst of all, of course, is here in the courtyard of the high priest, where Peter denies knowing Jesus three times. Immediately he regretted it. Luke tells us that, they met eyes together, Jesus and Peter, but Peter wept bitterly over this failure. Peter was ashamed. He was humbled by his failure. And Jesus here, after the resurrection now, on the side of the Sea of Galilee, he's going to address that failure and he's going to restore him. I think it's beautiful. Notice that Jesus didn't just, hey, we're not going to talk about that failure. You're just going to have to figure out that I'm okay with you. I love that Jesus addresses it and, and then lets Peter know for the rest of his life, that was dealt with. That's forgiven. We've moved on. Listen, by the way, this is how we handle problems in our families. You know, when you have maybe some, a tough time in your family, maybe an argument or something, I think it's wise just to go, let's go ahead and acknowledge that. Let's make sure we're over it. Joy and I had mentors that told us early in marriage, you know, from the scripture, don't let the sun go down on your anger. You, you have issues. Let's talk about it. Let's make sure we're okay before we keep moving forward. But I, I've heard of families that'll go weeks not speaking. You know, we had something happen. You know, eventually we'll get over it, I guess. In a couple of months, maybe we'll start talking again. Maybe it'll things work out. That's not the best way to handle our problems. I love here, mercifully, Jesus goes there with Peter to let him know it's going to be okay here. And we, and we get to read this for our own benefit. Let's look at verse 15. How does Jesus restore him? Look at the questions. Verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. For each occasion where Peter denied him, Jesus asked him, do you love me? Gives Peter a chance to affirm, no, I do love you. 
you've probably heard of this passage before. In the Greek language underneath this English, we have a couple of different Greek words being used here for love. The first two times Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? He asked, do you love me? And he uses the highest form of that word for love. That word we know as agape love, the verb form agapeo. Peter responds each time with a different Greek word. He uses the word phileo here. That's how it's recorded here in the gospel. And then the third time, Jesus drops down to the word that Peter's been using, that word phileo, and Peter then responds again with that same word phileo. And so what do we make of that? Some have said that here's Peter just being very humble by this. When Jesus asked me, do you love me? Using that best, the best word for love, Peter can't give that. He, he knows he's not trying to hold something back. He's just like, I, I, I'm not worthy to say that. I've demonstrated I, don't lo I haven't loved you like that. And so he comes down with another great word. I, I do love you. You know I love you. And Jesus then comes down, well, do you even love me like that? It's possible that's happening. Some scholars say, listen, John's just using these words synonymously here. The, the big focus here is just the question, do you love me? But let's take that on together. Do you love Jesus? And as we watch here, the Lord restore Peter with that question. Here's a reminder. You can be restored as a Christian even after you've sinned. Like we said at the beginning, it's good news for unbelievers. They can become believers by trusting in Jesus and all that life of sin can be forgiven. But even for us as believers, with our eyes wide open, we've made some mistakes, we've done some things we know we should not have done, or we've refused to do things we know we should have done. We've sinned in all kinds of directions and there's still grace available for you who's a Christian. There's that silly commercial that's still on from AT&T, not my mobile carrier, but AT&T has that question where you have customers coming into the store and the question is, well, who has the better deal for, for new customers? What about an existing customer? And they make the pitch, listen, you got the same good deal, whether you've been with us for a long time or you're brand new. I'm grateful in Jesus Christ, the same grace is available. Whether you're just today coming to know him as savior or you've been a Christian for 30, 40, 50 years, same grace available. Just as he forgave you as you came into the family, there's still ongoing grace and forgiveness for you. When you humble yourself and you come to him broken, repentant, he will forgive you. How do we know that? Well, we see it in Peter. How do we know it applies to us too? Well, 1 John 1, 9, the word of God says to Christians, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you can be restored, believer, even after sin. And here, here we find next, love for Jesus is the central issue. That's what Jesus keeps bringing up to Peter here. So do you, do you love me? And so in our own restoration to the Lord, this is a valid question for us. Which do you love? Do you love Jesus or do you love your sin? Peter already grieved over his sin. He wasn't like, I'm going to continue denying the Lord. This is my new life now. No, he's broken. Already done with that. Now he's being restored. But Jesus pulls out of him, makes him say it three times that he loves him. Jesus zeroes in on Peter's love. That night in the courtyard when he denied Jesus three times, who did he love? Peter loved himself. He loved his own safety. He was scared. But now Jesus says, do, do you love me? Let me ask this question to you. Do you need to be restored today? And the path to restoration is going to be the same. Lord, I'm going to acknowledge my failure to you. I'm acknowledging I knew better. I, I didn't do the things you've been telling me to do. That's a sin. It's many sins. Or I've been doing that for so long. Or I've been doing things you told me not to do. And I, I want to acknowledge that. That's what confess means. You're agreeing with God. 
And then also you confess your love for him. And Jesus, I want you to be back in your rightful place in my life. I love you more than anyone. In fact, did you notice how Jesus asked the question, do you love me? On one of the three occasions, he says, do you love me more than these? So what's Jesus talking about to Peter there, more than these? Well, it's possible that he's saying, do you love me more than these? More than these fish, more than these nets, more than these boats, more than that life of fishing that you once had. Do you love me more than all that? It's possible he's asking, do you love me more than these, more than the other guys, the other disciples? Or do you love me more than they love me? Do you love me more than these? So let me ask it this way for us. What's the greatest rival to Jesus in your life? Because if the Lord's asking you that question this morning, do you love me more than these? What would be the these in your life? What's that thing or who are those people that you might be tempted to put above him in your life? Some people have a lot of money and a lot of possessions. And as you come back to the Lord, he may ask you this question. Do you love me more than these, all your stuff? Maybe it's your friends, maybe a boyfriend or girlfriend. And Jesus would say to you, do you love me more than them? Maybe it's the approval of peers. I just want everybody in the culture to think well of me. And Jesus would say to you, do you love me more than these? Maybe it's a lot of hobbies you have and sports and trips and entertainment. And the Lord could look at you and say, do you love me more than these? Maybe the biggest rival to Jesus in your life is your own family. Say, I love my family. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love my grandkids. And, and they can take paramount place in your life. And the Lord could ask you, as good as those people are, do you love me more than these? And so the question for us this morning, do you love Jesus. Do you love him above all? That's what you need to be restored to, but also re restored to service to the Lord. And so finally, let's look at Peter being recommissioned. Verse 15, so beautifully, after getting him to affirm his love, Jesus says, feed my lambs. Verse 16, after affirming his love a second time, Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. And then verse 17, after affirming his love for Jesus that third time, Jesus said, feed my sheep. And we know that Peter went on to have a very significant role in the early church there. We read about it in the book of Acts. He's teaching and he's shepherding God's people. That day of failure there in the courtyard of the high priest when he denied Christ did not define the rest of his life. It did not end his usefulness to the Lord. Now humbled, now restored and empowered at Pentecost, he's used greatly of God. His sorrow was appropriate. His brokenness over his sin was appropriate. But now humbled, now full of the Holy Spirit, he will go on to be greatly useful to the Lord. In fact, again, two books in our New Testament that Peter wrote, so rich and wonderful for us. In fact, I commend to you, this Peter restored, maybe this week, read 1 Peter, read 2 Peter, and see how God used this man to indeed feed and tend the sheep. In fact, Peter's going to maintain a posture of humility from this time on. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 5, when he's talking to the elders there, he says to them, I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. That's Peter replying what Jesus said to him. Remember, Jesus said, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. These are mine. They're not going to be yours. You're going to take care of my sheep. Same thing he taught the elders in 1 Peter 5. Never think that God's people are your people. They're my people. Stay humble and serve me. So are you ready to serve the Lord? What's God calling you to do? I know this, every believer is called to serve the Lord in the life of their local church. 
And so in these days, as you have rekindled your love for Jesus, as the Holy Spirit's working that in you, would you also make yourself available again? Okay, I, I want to serve. It's, it's part of the Christian life. You can use me and let him use you in the local church. Just walk in the halls, encouraging people, looking for needs and ways to plug in and serve. Everybody has a role in the body of Christ. How else can you serve? When you look out in the community, there's a world, it's very obvious this world is lost, confused. They don't know where to go. They don't have truth. And you and I have the gospel, the good news. And we have a role out in the community, every one of us, to be salt and light, sharing the gospel, ambassadors for Christ. But God will call some of us into what we sometimes call vocational ministry, to become a pastor, to be a youth pastor, some other ministry role. God could call you to leave the career you're in, to start a new career in serving the Lord. And, and we as a local church want to be helpful to you. That's a scary proposition to go, wait a minute, this is what I know to do. What you, what, God, are you calling me to do something? Your first calling then will be to equip for whatever God would have you do next. And if God's beginning to create a fire in you for that, we'd love to help you as your local church to, to discern that calling and then to equip you for that. And God will even come call some into missions. Here in this season, we're giving money and praying for those in North American missions, church planning in places like Alaska, places like Los Angeles, where Dale, one of our own, is now planting a church, and places like Bonaire in our own area, where Adam and Lacey are seeking to plant a church, Jacob Jackson and Lakeside. God could call you to be a part of a church planning effort like that. And of course, we pray for this regularly, that God would send out more from Staples Mill to the nations to go to places outside of here where they have little access to the gospel. You could go to a place like Lima, Peru, where the cells left us to go serve. Of course, we have two families serving in the Middle East, another family serving in Central Asia, but God could call you to Europe where they're now longtime post-Christian. It's very dark and lost there. It could be someplace on the continent of Africa. It could be in South Asia, India. God could be calling you to go. And your move is this, Lord, I just want to be useful to you. Wherever you're leading me, I will go where you're leading me. Listen, your, your church family will help you discern those callings. Love to talk to you about it even this afternoon. But here's the good news. God can restore you and God can recommission you and use you for his glory. Well, my mind's been on restoration all week and I thought I'm going to find an illustration about restoration. I started thinking about car restorations. And so I don't know anything about that personally, but I've seen some amazing ones. And I, I found one online that I watched. It was a 15 minute video. Here's a guy somewhere in Asia. Actually, I had no talking in the video. It's kind of like a time-lapse video of him finding a car on the edge of his town there somewhere in Asia. It looked like, a, like the edge of a jungle, all these tropical trees, this rusted out 30-year-old car. He backs a tractor up to it with a chain and tows this wreck of a car out of the woods where it had been for ages and takes it back to his place. And again, time lapsed. It was a 30-day process, it said. But in 15 minutes, I got to watch this rusted out junker of a car transformed. He had to sand off all the rust. It was completely rusty. Ripped out the seats, rewired it, rebuilt the engine, obviously new tires, clearly new paint. It was beautifully red at the end and a new convertible top on this car. And then he drove it down the street. I had a lot of thoughts, a lot of questions watching that. Who would do that? Why would you try to restore a car when you could just go get a different car? Why would you do that? Who has the patience to do all the steps he needed over 30 days to do that? Who has the money to do that? Who has the skills to do every part of a car? And then I started thinking about our Lord. Our Lord, you, you might ask the same question. Well, why does, he, why does he restore us? Why didn't he just cast us aside when we fail and just go get some other people? But here, our, love, our Lord loves to restore. Our God loves us. Even when we fail as his children, 
And he's all about helping us to get back up. He loves us. He promises to restore us. When we come humbly to him and broken like Peter, we get a chance to reaffirm our love for him and we get to be recommissioned for him. We could summarize it this way. The risen Lord can take you from ruined to reborn to restored to recommissioned. Don't you want him to do that in your life? Let's pray together. God, we are so grateful that you're merciful. We, we are excited about when you first found us and opened our eyes to you and cleansed all our sin and gave us a new mission in life. We, we were so excited then. And Lord, we know that you're the same God, the same Savior. You haven't changed. And you're still worthy of our passion. And Lord, we're so grateful that you're so forgiving. And Lord, we, we do ask you around the room, God, would you rekindle us that you'd be the very first love in our lives, that we would love you above all else. And Lord, that we'd also desire to serve you, to tend your sheep, to tend and feed your lambs, whatever you're calling, God, we'd want to step into usefulness to you till you call us home. So Lord, we're trusting you by your spirit that you're now applying this message in every heart, just as you wish, that we would all glorify you. We pray in the name of Jesus.